Hello and welcome to Dairy Dialogue podcast number 90. And 90 is a number with a bit of a significance for me as I like sport. It's the distance between bases in baseball in feet and also how long a football or a soccer game lasts in minutes or is supposed to. It's also the number in a very odd kids' television program here in the UK called Joe 90, which aired in the late 1960s, and which nobody else has probably ever heard of. And it was definitely very different. Maybe that will spur some of you to be curious enough to check it out, as there are plenty of old episodes on YouTube. Let me know what you think. Anyway, I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and today we have three interviews. It was going to be four, but as they're getting longer, and I don't want to cut out anything interesting, then we can just hold one for another week. So, guests on the show this week are Peter McGuinness, CEO of Chibani, John Brown, Vice President of Marketing at Seelig, and Patrick Verhelst, LOPAC Chief Marketing Officer. And of course, we have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland from Stone X. I almost said their old name there. Going to take a while. It's the first week here in Scotland we've been able to go more than five miles for anything other than essential journeys like for shopping. So hopefully I can take advantage of that this weekend while still avoiding as many people as possible. Although, no doubt, it will rain. It's been very busy as usual, and we'll run through some of the news we've covered in the past seven days. One of the articles was the news that FIE and HIE, which have combined this year, and were set to take place in Frankfurt, Germany in early December, are still on. And other shows later in the year are also planning on going ahead. In fact, just this morning I got an email from a show in France that's taking place. Hopefully they will all happen and all run smoothly and safely. I think by then many people will be itching to travel again, if they have the budget, that is. Also in the news over the last seven days, Turkish processing equipment manufacturer Homak has developed a new ricotta system. Rethink Ice Cream launched a lactose-free ice cream with A2 Dairy and Collagen, and we will have an interview on the podcast with the founder of the company soon. Dairy Gold and the NDA announced a 2050 carbon-neutral goal, and in the UK, Mula Light launched two new low-fat crunch yogurts. In India, GEA Remote Service helped KMF during the coronavirus lockdown. Another article we've already done the interview with for the show is with Danone, who announced this week that their baby formula production facility in Ireland has received carbon neutral certification. One place you don't necessarily associate cheeses with is Indonesia, but we had an article this week on a company there making local cheeses. It's right across from Bali, so I volunteer to go and do an in-depth article and interview on the company. I think it might take weeks of filming. Closure Systems International in the US has a new closure for dairy beverages on the market. Arla Foods has a new CFO. We had the July commodity update from Maxim Foods, and the FAO and Rabobank have partnered on a food sustainability program that will initially look at the dairy sector in India and Kenya. You can read these and lots more at DairyReporter.com. And so to the first of this week's guests. 
Chobani has been very active in helping with coronavirus pandemic relief efforts in the U.S., and this week it announced it was launching a peanut butter and jelly Greek yogurt, a limited edition flavor with all proceeds benefiting Feeding America. And to tell us more about it is the company's president, Peter McGuinness. I wonder if you could just go through the new launch. Obviously, if you're from the U.S. or have been to the U.S., People will know that peanut butter and jelly is definitely a staple of the American diet. It's kind of very comfort food and it's very nostalgic and it's very emotional for most of us who grew up in the U.S. But let's back up, right? I mean, I think you and I, I think we spoke a while back. I mean, you know, we set out to do a bunch of things, right? We set out to do a truck a day to food banks. We had rapid response vehicles that got into smaller communities. We continue to do those efforts. You know, we donated a lot of media to Feeding America and things like that. We turned our Chobani Cafe in Soho, you know, into a food bank, we called it a food pantry. And we've been doing that for months, giving away free food. And we called our incubator companies in and they donated smoothies and coffees and bars and hummus and things. And we were able to do these big gift baskets for free for anybody and everybody, including our oat milk and our yogurts. And, this is part of that original kind of six or seven things we wanted to do to help. You know, we joined Nourish New York and we joined Kurds in Idaho and things like that to help the dairy industry. And don't forget, you know, we did Milk Matters just before COVID helping the dairy industry. So this is all building off of that. And it's a continuation of that. And the reason why the food bank batch wasn't deployed a couple months ago, we had to make the food and design the packaging and get everything printed. And it just takes time. So to launch next week, it's a four pack. It's a food bank batch. It is peanut butter and jelly, never been done before. It is delicious. And 100% of the profits go to Feeding America to help the food banks that are overrun, as we all know. Will you be donating products as well or continuing to donate product? Yes. And again, one of the reasons why we did food banks in a truck a day and rapid response vehicles to smaller food banks and community centers and hospitals and things like that is because we always did that. And I think we've always had a really strong relationship with food banks. And we always thought that they were critical in communities all across the country. And there were like these little lighthouses and beacons of hope. And they became even more important in the pandemic. So we just continued, expanded, and evolved our relationship. So, you know, we didn't kind of reinvent the wheel, if you will. You mentioned the, the peanut butter and jelly. I'm aware of its cultural importance. Was it an easy decision to come up with that? You know, it was something we were playing around with because we love nut butters, right? And uh, nut butters are a huge trend and there's a lot of nutrition in there. And we were able to pull it off very, very quickly. It's just one of those flavors that are beautiful and very emotional and very nostalgic. And it hadn't been done before from a flavor perspective. So we said, let's go for it. And the team did an awesome job, incredible job, um, the R&D team. And many of them were working remotely. So we, we pulled this thing off and we're very, very proud of it. I think one of the things with a, with a lot of special flavors is sometimes and, and i know know it from personal experience you you buy one of these special flavors and you try it and you think yeah it kind of tastes a bit like that it's really hard to to get it very authentic 
And so this, and I'm, and I'm sorry that you don't have product in front of you right now. It's identical, identical to a peanut butter jelly sandwich. It's, it's crazy. It's eerie <laughs> how much it tastes identical to a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like as if I was having it when I was, you know, 12 years old, the team nailed it every note, every nuance. And so this, when you eat it, it just brings you back and it's comfort and it's nostalgia. And it's uh, something that your brain kind of immediately remembers. So it's a lot of fun. And look, you may say peanut butter and jelly, yogurt. I mean, it's nut butters. So strawberry yogurt is, is not new. And then we had a lot, we have a line of nut butters, almond butters and things like that. And so this is a peanut butter and nothing is more Americana than peanut butter. And it delivers a lot of pack in terms of nutrition, right? You're getting healthy fats, you're getting more protein. So there's also a nice nutritional component to this in addition to just the, that great nostalgic taste. But yeah, I was extremely, we were all extremely surprised and proud of the team that they just nailed it from a, from a taste flavor perspective. Is it something that was in the works or is it something that you turned around really quickly for this project? That particular one, we were playing around with peanut butter, um, but we didn't have that combination because we have a nut butter line already out. But those are all almond butters and one is cashew butter and one is hazelnut butter. So we've, been, we've, we've had some nut butters out there. We hadn't done peanut butter and we wanted to in the back of our minds, we wanted to launch a peanut butter. We didn't know what that was. And then so the team mobilized really quickly to create this unique flavor. So we didn't have it. It doesn't exist in our portfolio. So we not only had to make like find suppliers and find the raw ingredients, we actually had to run trials very, very quickly. We had to do the graphics and get the, everything printed. So this was a this is a Herculean feat done in the middle of COVID, which, you know, everything's harder now to get done. And so in the span of, I think, two months, start to finish, we ideated, developed, created, commercialized, trialed this product, and it's out the door next week. We've made it already. It's ready to ship. So there's a sub point in here around agility and speed of a nimble private company, right? Um, we don't, we're not hierarchical made the decision, the team went and did it. And, you know, I try it, Hamdi tries it, and it goes out the door. That's record speed in terms of developing food from scratch and getting it into market. I guess the problem with that now is that when it comes to the next product, you'll be saying to them, hey, remember how fast you turned around the peanut butter and jelly product? I've already said it for everything in January. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah they've, uh, they've set the bar high. Too high for their own good, my friend. Yeah, too hard. But yeah. hey, we are where we are. Yeah, exactly. Well, what would it normally take from sort of the, the idea and the concept well, to launch? We're always quick. I mean, big food, CPG, will take year to years, right? Because they test and test and retest and... You know, it's got to go through the chain and matrix organizations and layers and bureaucracy and all that kind of stuff. We, we've always been very, very fast. We've been in that six to eight month range, which is that's considered extremely fast in food. I'd like to slow it down a little bit. I don't want to use, lose our entrepreneurial spirit. But, um, you know, six to eight months is doable. But, you know, you're pushing the team pretty hard. Right. 
but that's kind of where we've been living. I mean, we did that on oats and that was huge. We had to buy equipment from all over the world. And, you know, we called that formula one and that was down to the wire. And, uh, you know, that was only, <laughs> we launched that in February. And so that was a huge fast project in a whole new category, right. That we hadn't done before. So that, that was stressful in a good way, but we got it done. So two months is unheard of. Six to eight months is considered very, very fast, which is kind of where we live. And I think a year to two years uh, is considered kind of the norm. How's the oat products going? It's awesome. Number two manufacturer in Nielsen, U.S. food, and we just launched in February. So we're extremely pleased. 20 market share right out of the gates. The product is amazing. It's really delicious. It's got a whole milk dairy milk kind of flavor note texture mouthfeel. So it's absolutely delicious. As you know, it's very versatile. You can use it not only in coffee, but you can, this is, tastes so good. You could just drink it. You could pound it, but it also goes awesome with cereal. We're very, very pleased with the first three to four months of oat milk. I mean, we came out like a rocket. We got good distribution nationally um, and we have very high repeats. You know, and I think that's just testimony to the product. It's a very good tasting product. And from a sensory perspective, it's got great, like I said, texture and mouthfeel. And, you know, oat milk's growing 300%. It's crazy how much that category is growing. Now, almond and soy are growing, but I mean, soy's been declining for years, as you know, but almond's growing a little bit. But oat is the, we think it's the king of the plants. We continue to think it's the best of the plant-based options because of its versatility and nutrition, and also it's got a very low environmental impact compared to almonds. You know, it's a cover crop, very low, you know, low water needs and things like that. Uh, the category's exploding right now, which is very exciting. The peanut butter and jelly yogurt, is that going to be something that beyond the support for the food banks that you'll keep that product going? You know, we haven't made that decision. I think it's on the table if people love it. Why not continue it? Let's see it and get into market and see what consumers think and our customers think. And But we're open to it. Have you been doing a bit of social media on, on this one? I imagine that it'll not yet. probably... Not yet. We'll do it next week. You're our first conversation. So we'll hit that next week. And what I also love about it, Jim, is everybody said, oh, yogurt's dead. You know, yogurt was declining for three or four years, right? Now, we started to see yogurt come back back half of last year. We started to get like flat, you know, it had been down three or four percent in January, February and March. We started to see it bounce up to plus one or plus two percent. Now, since March, it's up five percent, four to five percent yogurt, total yogurt category all in. And then everybody said Greek is dead. Greek is dead in 2018 and 2019. It was so annoying. I found it incredibly frustrating. And I always say Greek is dynamic, not dead because I love play on words, but Greek is through the roof in terms of growth right now. You know, all those naysayers. And by the way, Greek started to come back way before COVID. So again, like uh, we started to see a turnaround end of last year. And then it just totally skyrocketed in the first quarter. A lot of that is driven by our growth in Greek because we've been innovating. We believe in it. So we continue to innovate in Greek and we, you know, we launched Less Sugar Greek um, we're about to launch complete here in next week as well, which is a very high nutrition delivery product. And then we continue to expand our core offerings and our pack size. We added more multi-pack and multi-serve. That's what consumers want. 
And so Greek is almost double digit growth. So, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And everyone said it was dead. And this is not long ago, six, eight, 10 months ago, everybody said Greek's dead. And then our competitors who were not competing well in Greek said, oh yeah, it's dead. Couldn't be farther from the truth. In the last four weeks alone, Greek is up 15%. So, you know, the, you know, what's great about this and, you know, this is dairy and you're a dairy talking to you, right? And Greek yogurt's three cups of milk to one cup of, of yogurt, which is another reason why we, we joined Nourish New York, part of that do good to make product for food banks because they were dumping milk and things like that because of the food service side of the business. But this is unbelievable. No one's talking about this. Yogurt's a growth category because it's got great nutrition. It's a healthy snack. In particular, Greek is double yogurt and growth because loaded in probiotics, loaded with protein, and low in sugar. So that is a superfood. That is the original superfood. High protein, low sugar, and now you've had probiotics for immunity and digestion. It's here to stay, it hits every trend. And so it was growing at a really good clip, and then post-COVID, at an even higher clip. And we talked to consumers, and they're like, look, we, I feel good about eating this. You know, we're all eating more at home, and you know, unfortunately, the consequence of that and everybody's at home is, you know, we're also kind of slipping and eating some more junk stuff. And, and I need to load the fridge up with these better options. So, you know, that is I almost forgot to mention this. So sorry to get so animated here. But th this is like the great untold story. It's, it's crazy. In many parts of the world, milk packaging is sealed using an induction seal under the closure. However, primarily that's not the case in the US. John Brown, Vice President of Marketing at Seelig, a global provider of induction heat seals, says uptake has been slow in the US, but there are definitely benefits to adopting the packaging solution. First of all, we, we've got two locations in North America, Canada and the US, and two in Europe, just outside of London and just outside of Zurich, Switzerland. And Seelig is in the packaging space main product is foil induction seals. So these are, you know, liners uh, that you'd find. If you opened up, a, you know, a, a mayonnaise or let's say, in, especially in, in North America, peanut butter, orange juices, and definitely in the UK, dairy, milk, you find one of these foil seals that you'd uh, peel off. And it's, you know, its purpose is um, multifold. One is leak prevention. And that really started with the uh, automotive industry where people would keep in the back of their trunk and it would be uh, for, you know, windshield washing fluid, radiator fluids and things like that that might, you know, they might buy, might spill over or topple over and it would leak. So we get, first got started with that as a big benefit, leak prevention, but uh, it very quickly turned into tamper evidence with, unfortunately, these, uh, we call the Tylenol murders, poisonings in the U.S. where someone had put in uh, some, I think, cyanide-laced tablets into a, a Tylenol. And um, unfortunately, there was several deaths actually here in the Chicago area. And so from then on, it's just take, gained popularity uh, because of those two things, leak prevention and um, really tamper evidence, uh, but also for uh, freshness protection you know, extension of shelf life, it, it uses foil. So that's a, you know, an infinite barrier. So it's, it's an oxygen barrier. It's been uh, growing over the years. We actually supply into closure manufacturers who, who will punch our 
roll of material. We sell it in like a roll or tape form, and it's punched, put into a cap, and then that cap will then go to a, a brand owner, in this case, maybe like a dairy, and the dairy would, after filling the package, they'd put the cap on, and then it goes through what's called an induction sealer. The easiest way to think of it is it's like a microwave oven, if you will, and it reacts to the uh, to the foil that's that's seen inside there, and it, it heats up the foil, and the foil in turn heats a, um, we call a heat seal layer below the foil that bonds to the uh, container then. So that's kind of the process. And, and my responsibilities at Seelig, I'm at the, the headquarters in here in Chicago area, is heading up the marketing and kind of business development area. We're kind of the global leaders in induction sealing. We've got very few competitors in North America. Can you print on them? And at what stage do you print on them? Yeah, they can be printed. And there's a lot of brand owners that do print. Basically, you, we can print on and really any surface that is exposed. We can actually, there's some cases where you print on the bottom side. So after the consumer pulls off the foil seal, they can see something on the bottom. So it might be, a you know, for like a gaming purposes or so we can we can print on the foil. We can print on films. A lot of these, the top of these liners, <clears throat> a lot of times are what the consumer sees when they first take the closure off is either uh, a pulp or paper, and we can print on that, or it's a film, and we can print directly on that, or it might be foil itself. We can print on that, and not only just for branding, but um, also kind of, you know, warnings or instructions, pull here or sealed for your protection, things like that, so the consumer realizes this is a, uh, a tamper evident or a, a freshness seal. You mentioned differences between the UK and the US. Could you give me some background on why that would be? Sure. It's a very different kind of uh, community, if you will, in, in the UK uh, versus the US. Nearly all of the UK has converted to induction liners. Uh, you know, I'd say, you know, the 95% area of dairy, you know, milk, fluid milk in the UK is using induction liners. You know, almost 3 billion containers a year. In the U.S., we're at single digits percentage, you know, 10% at best. And, you know, the big difference, I think, is the U.S. producers just haven't quite understood, first of all, the consumer preference production-sealed milk containers or the potential cost savings from, you know, incorporating induction liners into their packaging. The UK market and some other markets around the world have, you know, recognized this several decades ago and, you know, have converted, as I said, almost all of their all of their volume to induction seals. It just seems that you wouldn't expect there to be such a big difference. No, you wouldn't. And part of that might be there's not many or any that I'm aware of global Dairies, even in the U.S., there's a couple of large companies and a small, a lot of small independent dairies. So maybe what's being incorporated in the U.K. Uh, hasn't been corp incorporated in the U.S. because there's not big brand owners that would, you know, see the benefits in one area and bring it to their other area. So there's not a whole lot of overlap, if you will. But it's interesting because in the U.S., almost all you know, non-dairy food and beverage markets have kind of accepted and embraced the advantages of induction sealing. You know, the dairy market in the U.S. has been very slow to adopt change, any kind of change. 
the market's been fairly stagnant. And from what we hear, the, the margins are really very, very thin. Many, I think, of the brand owners believe the product to be more of a commodity and they compete on, on price with not a, a lot of thought on the packaging. We have commissioned independent research that shows, you know, consumers do prefer induction sealed packages. And there, so there hasn't been a whole lot of, uh, let's say, packaging changes or promotion of a lot of these packages. I think, you know, the big benefit would be if brand owners, uh, dairies uh, in the U.S., would recognize that putting a seal on uh, a package actually prevents leaking and actually can reduce the weight of a package through reducing some of the uh, plastic in the packaging. Really, the business case would be there for them. Um, Just very few have ventured into to try to make that change. And it's a shame because I think there's there's they're leaving some money on the table there. So what do you think that the barriers are to that? Would that be, do the, is there a fear of having to install all kinds of expensive equipment or that it's less environmentally friendly? Or Yeah, um, there is a bit of equipment uh, to be installed. It's it's uh, this induction sealing equipment. And it's to me, it's, it's rather inexpensive. And it could be bolted on, you know, right to your filling line today. It can actually just go over uh, or, you know, clamp onto your conveyor system. And it's not longer than maybe, uh, you know, a half meter. You know, the equipment itself is is probably in the twenty to $30,000, you know, range. So from that standpoint, there is some capital layout. So there's a maybe a bit of reluctance there to change the bottle the closures, the closures need to accept this uh, induction seal, but that's fairly easy. Because our liner adds tamper evidence to the package, the closure manufacturers could eliminate the tamper band. And in some cases here in the U.S., and I think all in the U.K., when you're using an induction seal, the closure manufacturer has eliminated the tamper band that goes on the package because it's no longer needed. And then the, um, the the height on the container itself, which typically would um, break that tamper band off and retain the tamper band once it's broken, that whole height can be eliminated. So you've got some, you know, some pretty significant cost savings there. Again, there's a, a bit of a capital outlay to change the closure and the bottle itself, but, you know, it's not significant at all in my mind over the long term. One of the other benefits would really be that in applying caps with tamper bands, when you are applying that tamper band, it has to go over a feature on the container that will actually keep the tamper band in place. When you're applying that down for the first time, there's a certain amount of torque that needs to be applied, and sometimes those tamper bands break on their way down or they're not fully deployed. In this case, if you used an induction seal, you wouldn't really, uh, without the need for a tamper band, your capping process could be much easier and much less defects of deploying that tamper band. So, you know, there are a few changes that would have to be to be made, but obviously that's been done in the UK and very successful. And also the other you know benefit would be you're getting less degradation. Milk is very oxygen sensitive. The longer, you know, the, the cap is on there the, with the foil in there, you're going to gain shelf life. Um, so less product goes bad either in the stores, in the shelf life, you know, the sell-by date could be extended, 
or you know also potentially in the uh, consumer's refrigerator the product would last longer and the capping speed can probably be increased because that you're not deploying that tamper band the overall bottle and closure can be lightweighted as well one of the issues with all containers is if they're not very rigid like a, a HDPE bottle if you stack them uh, or put pressure on them, as opposed to glass, which you squeeze a glass bottle, nothing happens to the inside, right? Because the glass is rigid. With HDPE um, polyethylene milk uh, containers, when you squeeze that, obviously the, the plastic flexes and the headspace, or the, basically the, the milk is, is being pressurized and it wants to go out that cap. HDPE caps and bottles are pretty weak materials and they'll stretch and bend and typically the seal area is not very good on HDPE because it's kind of made and then and then cut out in some cases. Gallons are almost all gallons in the US are put inside of a container, a rigid outer kind of secondary packaging for shipping purposes because they can't be stacked, they can't take pressure from other packages. So if you put a liner on there, packages can be stacked on top of each other because although they will pressurize, nothing is leaking out because of the induction seal. We can stack the gallons on top of each other on a pallet, eliminate those cases, pour more gallons on a pallet of product, and then just shrink wrap the outside. So you can put more gallons on a pallet, you can ship more, so you can cube out a truck at a higher percentage. The other big cost savings comes from because these packages do tend to leak without an induction seal, oftentimes you'll see in the dairy case, at least in the U.S., you'll see the dairy case, you'll see packages that have leaked and oftentimes consumers will, you'll see them going through packages to find one that hasn't leaked and poured milk down the side of other packages that are below it. And they've actually uh, taken to putting what they call dairy diapers. These are... <laughs> materials on the bottom of these uh, gravity-fed dairy cases that will actually absorb milk that leaks. And if we can use induction seals, there'll be no leaking. There's no need for these dairy cases to use these, what they call dairy diapers. And some other retailers are completely emptying the dairy cases, you know, at night a couple times a week, cleaning out the cases and the floor because of the milk spillage. And uh, it's an oxygen-sensitive material. It starts to degrade, and, and you'll get uh, odors and stuff. So that whole cost can be eliminated. And uh, I know in the UK and, and a study that was done in Australia, they, they, there was significant labor savings because they didn't have to clean up those areas, certainly as much as they did before. Are there environmental benefits to this as well? Yeah, certainly the big benefit would be from reduction of materials, plastic materials. So you're adding a small liner, but you're eliminating a tamper band. You're eliminating the plug seal plastic from the uh, closure, and you're, you can eliminate some of the weight out of the bottleneck itself. And in those cases where you actually are using gallons and you're using cases, that you know protect the gallons those cases can be eliminated and then um, cost savings again of the or the sustainability of having an oxygen sensitive product be able to extend the shelf life so there's less food waste either through the you know the retailer having to send it back or the consumer you know having to pour it out 
you would think that this would be the kind of thing that consumers would be demanding, but then if they're not aware of it, how do you communicate with consumers that this is an option so that they can then pressure companies into adopting it? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and we do know through independent research that consumers, uh, and we've tested milk, we've tested some other products as well, but specifically on dairy, the testing was done here in, in the U.S., but specifically on dairy consumers when kind of asked what's important to them, and it was safety, leak prevention, and kind of ease of use. And when they were given packages, standard packages today, without a an induction seal and just a tamper band, and then packages with induction seals and, and uh, specifically some of our um, lift and peel kind of half moon tab, which is, the, I believe, the predominant induction seal in the UK, they preferred, overwhelmingly preferred packages with an induction seal. And so it's consumer preferred how to get that message out. We have, through various means, social media, and, and obviously speaking with the dairy companies, trying to get them to, you know, convert over. It's hard to reach the, the retailers, you know, the, there's mostly large retailers here in the U.S. with our message, but through social media and really getting the message out. And through things like, you know, your podcast is getting the message also to the industry and those in the industry that are, you know, on the production side and dairies, the large brand owners, the wholesalers, you know, the retailers, that this is consumer preferred. And we believe it's a good business case for them that would uh, increase consumer acceptance uh, and also there's cost savings to the, to the retailer, there's cost savings to the brand owner, there's cost savings to the dairy. A few weeks ago, we carried an article about Elopac's new Pure Pack Imagine, which the company said is its most environmentally friendly carton to date. Patrick Verhelst, Elopac Chief Marketing Officer, tells us more about it. And if, while you're listening to this, you're trying to envisage how it all looks or works, afterwards you can take a look at the video in the article that accompanies the podcast, or you can do it while you're listening if you're good at multitasking. I mean, we call it a pure pack uh, imagine. I mean, actually, what we thought about is, okay, let's combine all the best elements that we have around uh, making the carton environmentally friendly and combine that into one. How does that then really look like? That's basically what this Pure Pack Imagine uh, is. It's, it's the most environmentally friendly carton that we actually can produce today. It's made with the natural brown board. It has a lesser carbon footprint than standard white, but it also appeals very much to consumers. I mean, our sales in brown board are actually... Um, growing very, very quickly. But we've combined that with renewable PE. Uh, it's PE made from trees. Uh, so uh, it's called tal oil. If you take a pine tree, it's the oil that you feel when you touch the pine tree. And this oil is a side product. It's actually a waste product uh, in paper production. But we, we took this waste product and made what's well, actually dough that makes then resin out of it and we extrude it so we ha you have actually with the fibers and the plastic that is still inside it's the, the carton is actually made out of wood 
It's a very interesting concept. The board is, of course, uh, FSC certified, and we actually sell the cartons also as carbon neutral. The small footprint that is left is being offset, and we eliminated uh, the cap. Now, that's, that's nothing new. Huh? This is a modernized version. I mean, if you go back 30, 40 years, back to the 70s uh, or before, I mean, all the cartons were made without caps. So we, we just went back to that technology. The only modification that we made there is we modernized it a bit, uh, meaning the opening of the carton, it's not the standard uh, opening that is in, in the market with this type of solutions, but actually the whole side of the carton opens up, which makes it uh, much easier to pour from, especially if you talk about more viscous products. Then also, if you make that link with viscous products, the carton has folding lines so that when the carton is empty, it's very easy to fold it together and actually empty it completely. That's, that's actually something that's very difficult if you use a cap, so it makes it absolutely ideal for that type of uh, applications. And since we wanted to actually contribute a little bit more, there is a special top fin on this design. It's a bit asymmetrical so that it guides the consumer as how and where to open this carton. Because, of course, in the, the Nordic countries, the consumers are very much uh, acquainted with this type of cartons. So this fin guides the consumers a bit. And in order to actually stimulate all of that, we also made a video, an animation, how to open these type of non-cap solutions, which, which consumers, or let's say, no, customers, can actually, I mean, they can use the video, uh, put a, a QR code on the, on the pack so that consumers can, can scan it. The, the video can be modified so that it has the brand of the, of the customer and uh, it allows customers to explain how these cartons are opened if consumers are not that familiar with it. I think it's a very interesting move in promoting more, again, more environmentally friendly types of packaging. It's to say, well, okay, how far can we go? And is there a way of educating consumers to adhere to these new types of thinking so that we all contribute to a better environment. For the opening that you, you mentioned, is it like the way the old packs used to be where you kind of push out the fin and then it pulls apart? Yes, only the old cartons, only the top actually opens up. Here, the, the whole side of the carton opens up. It becomes like a carafe. It's much easier to pour from and empty it than it, it used to be before. It's not the same, so it's it's really a modernized version, much more easier to use than than what we had before. We even had the discussions inside uh, Elopac, and actually some of our R&D people went out to retired engineers to say, well, okay, how did we actually make the cartons 40, 50 years ago? Because there was no plastic. But the concepts that actually exist uh, from the past. I mean, if you start modernizing them with modern techniques, I mean, they are interesting ways of uh, eliminating plastic uh, in the future. Because it's less plastic, does that mean that for your customers is a savings or is it more the fact that it's better and the consumers are going to be more attracted to it? 
overall, since you're eliminating the cap, I mean, the acquisition cost, let's put it that way, for a, a customer is equal or less than uh, a standard carton with cap, and yet you have a carton which has all these features into it from brown board, renewable PE, uh, FSC certified carton neutral. So you have highly sustainable or environmentally friendly carton at slightly lower acquisition costs than a standard uh, carton with a cap. The single-use plastics directive is put into implementation in the various countries around Europe, and we see taxation appearing uh, based on the amount of plastics in a pack. Also there, there are possible savings in the future. I can't say it right now because it's all definitely in movement. And you also need to take into account that a carton like this has a lower footprint as well. So if you would turn that to future eco-modulation fees, uh, etc., there is a good argumentation to have lower fees uh, for this type of cartons than for other ones. Carton without cap, uh, like imagined versus a carton with cap, that's more or less 46% less plastic. That very tiny plastic cap, in, in a way, is you save half of the plastic content of a carton. If you look at footprint, for instance, a carton has a much lower carbon footprint than a PET bottle. And, uh, there has been this famous study in, in Germany illustrating that a carton has 70 to 80% less carbon footprint than a PET bottle. Uh, and if you would recycle the PET bottle 10 times, it still is a difference of 50%. But if you take a carton without cap versus a carton with cap, then that by itself is also a further reduction of 30% in carbon footprint. As far as consumers are concerned, they, they obviously want more environmentally friendly products. Are they coming to you saying, this is what we need, or are you developing those products independently in advance of what they need? No, we do, we do regularly uh, consumer uh, studies, and of course, PurePack Imagine, I, I have to say, it's a new product, but it's also the first of a whole new generation that you will see appearing on the market in, in the coming years. I mean, there are three things that I think are important. One, PurePack as, as a carton is always on top in consumer research if you talk about best in use. It's simply a carton that by its iconic shape hasn't changed for the last hundred years, really. It's simply because it's 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 the best in use. I mean, the, you don't spill, easy to handle, easy to pour, easy to open. Consumers basically like that. Now, if you then really play on the environmental aspects of the whole thing, what then is very clear is that brown board gives an immediate reflection to the consumer of this is environmentally friendly. The last question marks that are then remaining is around the plastic cap. And here it's extremely difficult to explain to a consumer what if we make that cap out of standard polyethylene or we make it out of recycled polyethylene or we make it out of renewable polyethylene visually it's all the same from a carbon footprint it's of course very very different what the consumer sees it's a plastic cap so if you then take a brown board without plastic cap there is an immediate 
association by of consumers with sustainability and easy to recycle low footprint the association with sustainability drivers is extremely strong and what else is the company doing in this area of sustainability and reducing carbon footprints Yellowpack as a company is leading by example already for a long time so Yellowpack has reduced its its carbon footprint 70% from 2008 to 2018 we have also subscribed now to what is called the science based targets this is a translation of i would say the the paris agreement into real targets that are controlled and measured so the paris agreement talks about keeping global warming to a level of 2 degrees afterwards there was the discussion saying well 2 degrees is already too far we should really limited to 1 and 1/2 degree so we have subscribed to that as a company and actually then through applying this to these science based targets we have actually then calculated our own targets between now and 2030 in order to keep global warming to 1 and 1/2 degree we were one of the first well definitely the first packaging company that uh, subscribed to this and one of the first companies actually also in the in the world doing this it means actually a further reduction of our carbon footprint with something like 50% just to put it in perspective our total footprint is around about 8000 tons of co2 on an annual basis and this is for the entire company so it it's already very minimal and that we have to bring them down to something like 4000 tons of course all of that is of a very very different nature if you compare that to plastics were automatically you you start to talk about millions of tons we are also contributing to all the different associations in europe to increase the circular economy aspect of fibers so you have the Uh, ACE which is the association of uh, beverage carton producers and then next to that we have extract that is an organization by the same beverage carton producers which deals with the recycling streams they are there to increase the recycling rate of cartons collection and sorting and recycling so that we will go from today roughly 50% being effectively recycled to 70% by 2025 and we're also a member of the Forever Green Alliance which is an alliance of participants of the entire value chain to increase the level of circularity of fiber based packaging up to 100% because already 85% roughly of paper packaging is recycled today and that needs to be brought to 100%. So on one hand we have all these the initiative as a company that we reduce our footprint even further. We have the aspect of circular economy where there are quite a number of initiatives to increase the recycling of beverage cartons uh, as a whole. and then of course there is still the area of product development and new product launches and i mean here clearly set a direction which is about replacing plastic or i could say reducing plastic that trend and that direction we will keep 
strengthening in in the future. So if you take Imagine, which is a reduction of something like 46% of plastic compared to a standard carbon, we will keep continuing on that route and automatically then also lower the carbon footprint of the cartons. If we use something, we promote renewable plastic made out of renewable sources and then specifically making it from this waste product of paper from tal oil. So we avoid a bit uh, using renewable PEs made out of products that somewhere can serve as, as a food product or are anywhere linked to deforestation. So this is for us one of the um, priorities. Number one, every fiber that we use comes from controlled and legally approved sources. One of the points that I, I keep stressing a bit to people is that there is a timeline behind all of this. The Paris Agreement and the targets of keeping really global warming below one and a half degree the tipping point, let's put it that way, is 2030. And then you go beyond that towards 2050. It's the same target setting that you find back in the, in the Green Deal of the European Commission. The thing is, of course, that, and this is, I think, often forgotten, that the lifetime of a filling line easily is 15 years. And then we're by now already in 2035. So. If people want to invest today in packaging and filling lines and packaging technologies, it's, it's important to consider these, these timelines because if you make a choice right now that is not going to reduce the footprint uh, in the next 10 years, well, as company, you will miss most likely the targets that will be applied. It looks like at 2030, that's still far away. Well, 10 years less than the lifetime of an investment in the filling line, right? And now it's over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland from StoneX. Hi, Jim. Well, the dairy markets uh, the last week or so uh, could largely be described as, in Europe at least, uh, as moving sideways. There was slight signs of prices improving and then, then you'd quite quickly see uh, other signs of, of markets looking under a bit of pressure. So it was searching, I would say, for some direction the market was. That, that is until yesterday's GDT auction. Um, so the GDT auction of the global dairy trade is uh, the main physical market auction, which is run primarily by Fonterra out of New Zealand, but there's also some global participation. And the, the results on that auction were, were extremely strong. They were up about, uh, price were up about 8.3% from the previous event, which was much higher than most people were expecting. Uh, in general, the expectation was up maybe something like 1% or 2%. So really quite a strong result. The majority or the strongest product, should I say, was Holman Powder, which printed an increase of about 14% which really was quite a surprise. But we also had strong results for, for skim milk powder, which is up 3.5%, and even butter, which was up 3%. So all in all, it was, again, much stronger than expected. And, and that's leading a lot of people to ask, is this what, what, is, what appears to be very strong demand? Uh, is it sustainable? And how will this develop going forward? There's still obviously a lot of question marks out there uh, around the demand, potential destruction as a result of uh, the COVID-19. 
Um, obviously, a lot of the economic indicators uh, still looking very poor. So normally we would expect that should have a dampening demand uh, impact. But um, obviously, this is, is showing that there's still strong demand out there from, from some regions, at least. The buying participants on the GDT was was mixed. It, it was a lar- large portion from North Asia, mostly China, we would estimate, um, but also strong participation from Southeast Asia. So just from that region, at least, demand seems to be better than expected. We'll wait and see if this provides some stimulus to prices uh, this side of the world in, in Europe. Uh, it usually takes a little bit of time before that filters true. But right now, certainly a, a bullish signal in, in the market, which has been, um, I'd say, keenly looking for signals. Looking at uh, other fundamentals in Europe, uh, milk collection, for example, was is looking okay. Um, weather's been a, a little bit mixed, but in general, not too bad. Um, farm level economics are, are also not too bad as, as milk prices are, are holding up pretty well. Um, so in general, the outlook for, for production side of things uh, is is looking okay. We're not going to have a really strong year-on-year increase, but we, we may end the year somewhere close to a neutral compared to the previous year. So with milk collections coming in okay and uh, probable demand destruction as a result of, uh, of COVID-19, we, there's still certainly bearish arguments out there but the gdt yesterday shows that um there, there's still demand so that's countering some of that so right now um we will see we'll keep close eye on the markets to see if uh, if this demand increase um does continue and if it drives prices a little bit higher in europe but uh so far the trend over the last few weeks has been sideways thanks jim thanks charlie we'll catch up with you again next week StoneX, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's all we have for you this time. Another diverse podcast with some long interviews. Next week, the plan is for interviews with Norseland about their new products, including plans for a Christmas launch, Rethink Ice Cream about their A2 lactose-free ice cream with added collagen. Ecotensil on their packaging solution for utensils in lids. And General Mills on their regenerative dairy pilot project in Michigan. And me, probably complaining about the weather. And maybe about other things. So, I hope you all have a great week ahead. Take care, and, as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>